You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 29. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. I cannot tell you, I really can't tell you how excited I am for this episode. I know all the episodes are great in their own individual ways, but you guys, if I could only tell you to listen to one episode to really change your life, this episode would be the one. I'm talking with Christopher Carter today of thisepiclife.com. Christopher and I met through the most unusual circumstances, but I can only say after listening and recording this episode, I am so grateful for the universe and how it aligned. Christopher and I actually met in like two seconds at a LaGuardia airport as I was delayed on a flight from New York to Chicago the week before I moved to Austin. I was just standing around waiting and started talking to some girls that looked nice and, you know, we're just kind of killing time. And as I was talking to them, their coworker, who happened to be Christopher, came over because his flight too was delayed. So he was talking to the girls and Christopher and I didn't personally start talking at all really, but on the flight home with the girls, I was talking and they kind of told me a little bit about Christopher, that dude that I met in the airport, and I couldn't believe his story and I knew I needed to have him on the show. So I'm so grateful that they forwarded Christopher my information and he reached out and I'm so grateful to have him on. In this episode, we're talking with Chris, who happens to be a huge meditator, yogi, father of three children and a full-time employee and someone who works with Jonathan Fields and his programs, as well as having his own webinars and coaching practice on his own, helping people achieve full life integration. And by the way, he also is really big into music and has even done touring rock bands. So this guy has a million things going on, and we're going to talk about how he as he calls it, achieves full life integration. It starts with how he was at one minute at his office doing work, and then half hour later, he finds himself on the operating table almost dying. So it starts there. And then we go on to the framework and how Chris uses it and actually is remarkably similar to my values-based intention process. So we talk about that. Then we go into the difference between right action and action for the sake of action. And around, I'm not really certain exactly where this is going to fall, guys, but I'm going to guess it's around minute 42 once I add this intro. We start talking about how he created a meditation program for the company he works for. So since he has a full-time job, he hasn't just tried to do his business on the side. He's also tried to bring his passions to his workplace, which changes the entire concept that we have to take our passions if we have a full-time job and start a business on the side. That's not the only way. We talk about how to take your passions and bring them to and improve the place where you work as well. So we're going to talk about that towards the last half of the show. And he also gives a ton of great advice for anyone who does have a full-time job and wants to love it and wants to navigate their career into a way that they love. He has tons of great advice. Like I said, guys, if I could have you listen to one episode, this is it. Let's go to the show. And if you really want to, I really encourage you to listen to it twice. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so thrilled to have you here, Christopher. My pleasure. I'm honored to be here. Yay. Okay. So I've already explained in the intro, but I'll say it again. 
I can't believe how randomly we met, but I'm so glad that it worked out that we met at that airport. You know, it's funny is like the more of a yogi that I become, nothing seems truly random, Jess. I just feel like uh, I found out about a week later who you were and what you do and, and about this show and I just devoured every episode. So I'm just uh, kind of geeked out to be joining you here today. Wait, really? You listen to the show? Yeah, yeah. I checked out some of the other episodes just to hear, you know, the different stuff that people were doing in the world and how you capture it and kind of your angle on things. And probably the overarching thing that I vibe with the most is just the really intention, value-based lives and careers, you know, regardless of what they do for a living, it's just how you capture the people. So that's, that's right up my alley. Amen. I like that. Okay, so let's get started and talk about that life-changing moment you had in 2001. Hmm, that one. It seems the more I you know, interview people myself, uh, everyone has their own version of the hero's journey. And my day of reckoning kind of came on October 25th, 2001. I was actually sitting in a cubicle under terrible beige fluorescent lighting uh, with beige cubicles everywhere, um, which was not <laughs> flattering for me. And I realized that I didn't remember if I had called the person on the other end of the phone or if they had called me. So I was having some sort of a brain lapse. My coworkers were unrecognizable to me. I couldn't remember anybody's names. I was exhibiting what looked like aneurysm-like symptoms, so they rushed me off in an ambulance, and I had to get an emergency CT scan and spinal tap, which is really strange to be working in a cubicle, going to work, you know, doing your normal stuff one minute, and then within a half hour, you're on the table in an emergency room. And um, the interesting thing that happened was that my my body didn't respond well to anesthetic. I still don't respond well to anesthetic. And the doctors nearly lost me while I was um, being anesthetized. So I had this reckoning for sure that, A, I didn't want to die in a cubicle. I didn't want that to be, <laughs> you know, like, like nobody does. Um, you know, I, and I don't think, I, conversely, I don't think anybody necessarily wants to live in a cubicle either, but I didn't want to die in a cubicle. And I knew that once I pulled out of that and figured out what was going on with me, that I would have to fully break apart and reexamine how I was living my life and figure out what the problems were that kind of led me to that point. All right. So what actually had happened? Was it an aneurysm? It wasn't an aneurysm, thank God. It was. Uh, it turned out to be the precursor to some debilitating stress migraines. And I would get them at different points, and they would continue to happen until I really started narrowing down what it was, because partially it was some diet and some bad things I was consuming. But most of all, it was stress. So it, it happened a couple weeks later. I was in Target. My wife would come up to me, and I would look at her like, oh, I'm here with you. Interesting. We're at Target. Great. <laughs> So rather than seeing halos or hearing crazy sounds like most people do when they hear when they get migraines coming on, I was having these brain lapses. So it was a major wake up call in terms of not having the functionality of my, you know, operating system. Yeah. So how long did it take for that kind of health issue to subside or is it still going on? Uh, no, you know, fortunately it did. It did subside. I, I started the day I got back from the hospital with getting radically authentic and honest, both with myself and my wife about what had been going on in my head and in my life because I was just a stressed out mess of a person. So that, that was kind of major step one, which helped then getting really close um, examination of everything I was ingesting, how I was living, how I was nourishing myself, fueling my body. That was step two. So I would say over the period of the next 12 months, everything subsided and shifted. But that was the moment when I was 26 years old that really started me on the path that I am now. 
what was the stress, if you don't mind going into it, what made you that stressed out? And did you know you were that stressed out before it happened? I kind of knew because I was totally checked out of my life at that point. I was uh, smoking a lot of pot. I was really in denial about how unhappy I had become. And I'm naturally a very authentically happy person. I was I was trained by some of the most happy creatures on the planet, my grandfather most notably. So I had this overwhelming optimism, but it had become dulled. And uh, there was a lot of factors involved. So everything that I was experiencing on the health manifestations, they were really just different symptoms of the same underlying problem. And that is really that my life was kind of, I felt like a jack of all trades, master of none. I had been a musician since I was a kid, uh, professional at different points. I was now married with a young wife and starting a family. I wanted to have a career in corporate, believe it or not. I thought all those things could somehow work together, but I felt so torn and siloed through, through the day in and day out of my life that I actually resisted everything else while I was doing any one of those things. I was resisting everything else. So it's what I call living a disintegrated life, the opposite of integration, which is when you're just scrambling to keep it all afloat, but nothing's working. You have a process to help people find that integration. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So over the the course of these, you know, now 12, wow, going on 13 years, it's crazy how fast time goes, I started to discover that there was an absolute methodology to integrating and aligning your life in a way to create maximum output, maximum happiness, maximum fulfillment. And I actually had a vision a couple years ago, 2012. I didn't know at that point yet how to articulate what I now call the framework. And you could actually find the framework. It's available all for free on my site as part of a manifesto called The Framework. It was this vision, and I call this my my flux capacitor revelation because it was not unlike Dr. Emmett Brown in 1955 when he discovered the modes of time travel in Back to the Future. <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of this definite aha moment. I had taken off three weeks of work in 2012 just to meditate and run and to get really clear about what had worked and not worked over the preceding years and what was going to take me into the future. And I was able to somehow download the formula or the framework. And the framework works like this. Step one is you upgrade your lens. Your lens is much bigger than just a happy-go-lucky attitude or there are no weeds in my garden. It's how you perceive the entire world and experience of life through you. You know, The lens could either enhance or diminish all you experience. So once you have that kind of in alignment created around a series of virtues that are both, for you, you know, values as well, that are both inspirational and aspirational to you, meaning they inspire you to do better, but they also pull you forward to do more. And you start with that, and then you define what I call your non-negotiables, which are sacred life ingredients that cannot be removed or substituted. So for me in my life, if I look back and inventory these things, it was some sort of soul practice or meditation. It was running and vitality and also juicing. I consider that to be a part of vitality. Then it's my family, then it moves into art and music, and then I take all of that into my work so that my work for the world around me could benefit from everything that comes before it. So as each step you're going through this, you're aligning those non-negotiables, and as you practice is that you achieve and you trip over these experiences of what I call full life integration when the sum is infinitely larger than the individual pieces parts, but you're operating at a, at a kind of a different level flow state through being fully integrated. That's awesome. Do you mind if we unpack each one of those steps a little bit more deeply? Yeah, let's go. 
Okay, so let's go back to upgrading your lens. So what more practically for someone that's listening right now can they do to make that upgrade? Absolutely. And uh, I do have, you know, and I'm, and this is in no way to uh, pitch my stuff, but I, I have captured these in a series of free workbook exercises. Those are all available. But where I have people start is by starting with a big list of virtues and reading over those. And I start with virtues because they seem to be more primary and fundamental than even values on, on some level. Virtues are, you know, at the heart of a lot of Greek philosophy. They're at the heart of a lot of yogic training and religious and spiritual practice. Virtues just seem to me to be really core and really big. So I have them read down a list. I have them circle which resonate with them. So, you know, humor, creativity, These are all huge ones for me. Uh, Excellence is a huge one for me. And I'll actually recite my lens statement here when we're done with this piece just to show you how it all comes together and how it continues to evolve. But they start with these virtues. Those are what I call uppercase V values. So what you're saying is what I, you know, it's life with intention and values based intentions. That is actually the same. So I would just use that as a synonym for virtues for the uppercase V values, because you can value outcomes and achievements, but those are lowercase V values. So I think that your virtues that you're speaking to are included within my definition of uppercase values, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk a lot about that in meditation training, that the biggest benefit of meditation for business people and for the average bear is to um, cultivate your meta attention. And when you have meta attention, it keeps you in line with your uppercase V's and your virtues and things. But the first step, as we know, in creating this kind of vision for ourselves is to define it. You know, so what, what lights me up? What pulls me forward? What do I aspire to be and grow into? So mine started out two years ago. The, the first lens statement I wrote was all about entertaining and inspiring people, but how that's evolved has taken me considerably further beyond that. So it starts with capturing the values, but then the next step would be kind of crafting language around it that leads you forward. And the language, and when I share my lens statement, you'll be able to hear it. It's very... um, in the now, it's current. It's so when I when I'm speaking it to myself or reciting it to myself while I'm running, like a schizophrenic person might, or as I'm saying it to myself after I've meditated for an hour to fully, you know, once all my channels are open to speak to myself in that way. It's in the now, even though the values and the virtues may be aspirational, I'm speaking to myself as if it's who I already am. And there's a resonance there that again tends to pull us forward. It's actually my definition of intention is a statement of our deepest values in a particular area of our life that we embody and given whatever current circumstances we have. So you and I are like <laughs> twins here. I didn't even realize how, how awesomely similar this was. That's great. And what you call a lens statement, I just call a values-based intention. I always say the intention part is just the sandwich baggie that holds all the values together so you can recall it throughout your everyday life. Because if you can't remember it during your day, you won't be able to act on those values. I love that you use sandwich baggie. I was thinking fanny pack for <laughs> snacks. But you can't see. I like the sandwich baggie because it's clear. So you can still see the words within it. See, this is when you know that you've agreed to the proper interview because I start, <laughs> I, I'm liking you more and more with each thing you say. And I'm thinking like in my head, I just see this like flashing billboard. It's like hashtag samesies, hashtag uh, besties, hashtag matching outfits. Yeah, it's, it's really similar. It's all really similar work. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, so so basically what you're saying is to define your values or virtues, whichever word you want to use, put it into a sentence, which is your lens statement. It's my values-based intention, your fanny pack, your sandwich baggie, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so what do you suggest doing next? 
Yeah. So after that's crafted, and it can be like a multi-sentence paragraph. You know, if I think of every mission statement I've ever read from the worst, terrible, cheesy corporate mission statements that don't work for anybody to the most noble, service-oriented, inspiring missions that I've read. And I, I, I help companies craft those sometimes. They do have some continuity to them. And they, they tend to be a little bit they tend to be a little bit longer than just one sentence. If you're able to articulate your mission and your life's work down to one sentence, that's great from a marketing perspective, and, and I'm always working on that. However, from a lens statement perspective, I'm trying to capture somewhat all of my non-negotiables, the person, the entirety of myself, of who I'm trying to align with as, as this deeper aspect of myself so I could transcend the ego and all these little limitations. So I could, I could lay some of it on you if you want to hear it, just to kind of hear how the language is crafted. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. The only difference I think with me is that I don't try to put them into a paragraph, but to have statements that apply to different areas of your life that you either want to strengthen or that stress you out. So for me, that's kind of the areas I ask people to start with, but then they're all kind of separate, disparate, because you can have you can have an umbrella value, I call it, which is like, or a statement or intention that applies to many areas. My actual temporary intention tattoos are my personal umbrella values that go th- across all of the areas of my life. But for example, for me, a little bit different than virtues because of those like, you know, patience, integrity, those are wonderful things. But I also, with the values, will extend it to things that are just very, very important to you in an internal ongoing sense that aren't goal related. So for example, my exercise value is to move at the pleasure of my soul. Now you're not going to find that on a list to circle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for my definition of it, it's wonderful and it it really suits me. I don't have the pleasure of my soul in any other intentions for the rest of my areas of my life. So I don't have them in a paragraph, but I love your idea of having it in that. So let's look at yours. Do you mind sharing? Yeah, not at all. And it's evolved over time. So it's, you know, it's a little bit longer than it used to be, but everything kind of has a space. And when I upgrade and I encourage people to upgrade their lens periodically, I break the whole thing apart and start over. You know, I I reexamine what needs to be on there, what needs to be upgraded, because you might find that the virtues that served you through a period of time in your life no longer apply. Exactly. You, You outgrew them. You're growing into your big boy or girl pants. Yeah, so so mine currently, uh, it starts with my yogic training and leads through my non-negotiables. It's, I serve God and others through my creative and inspired example. I remain humble in the miracle of my circumstances. Sobriety and integration guide my destined outcomes. I consciously pursue excellence. I joyfully expect everything to work out. I have fun. And on a daily basis, I cultivate the discipline necessary to rock all of the above. Oh, I love it. I love it. It is slightly different than what I do, but I love it. I just like hearing that makes me so excited. (laughs) Thanks. You know, I... I lend, you know, people, people I coach and the people I inspire, they, they borrow and steal parts of mine if it, if it serves them. But I, I steal and borrow things from them too. Like sometimes when they say it, the most gratifying aspect of my work is when I speak at a college or in a classroom and I hear these high school kids, I get tears in my eyes thinking like, I would have killed to know this when I was 18 years old or 22 years old, whatever they are. And some of the stuff that they say, Jess, it it, it literally knocks me over. I'm just so blown away by how powerful people can be if they're brave enough to articulate it. It's so funny that you say this because again, hashtag samesies, because I speak to college students myself because I was so miserable in college. That was my 2001 moment, if you will. It wasn't in 2001, Uh but I had a similar one in 2006. And I was that broken college student that was miserable trying to do everything the way people told me to, and it wasn't working. So I do the same. I go back and it's so awesome to be able to talk to those students, basically talk to my younger self and help them 
know things I wish I had known. You're coming, you're coming back like Neo in the Matrix. And, you know, <laughs> it's like the, the, all the scripts that were handed by our parents. And our parents do the best they can. You know, the society does the best they can. But those scripts tend to be one size fits all. And nobody gives you a, a, a manual for your own epic life or whatever it may be. So if you're not going to articulate it, who's going to? You know, an employer or your parents. And, and that works for some people. But I think the, the, the similar story there for, for a lot of people, especially you and me, is that the script serves you so well. And then you realize how incongruent it is with how you intend to live. And you need to write your own roadmap. I think I find that for me, and this is just my own experience, but I feel like there is the value in the parent realm is security. So that's what they're valuing. And so they do things that are safe and where uncertainty is rare because security kind of means that there's no uncertainty in a lot of cases. So they try to put us into situations that are certain, but often following our intuition rather than the ego involves having faith in the values and dealing with uncertainty at the same time, which goes in complete contrast to what the parents taught or the security that they value and just society in general. So it's easy to get caught up on those lowercase v values of outcomes and achievements because they feel safe and they feel like if you have them, then you'll be happy. It doesn't work that way. But that's kind of the problem that we're facing as we you know, come out of college and try to do things the way we were taught. Oh, absolutely. I mean, gosh, so many things of what you said resonate right now. I'm trying to think of how many ex-salespeople and ex-lawyers I currently know that are now yoga teachers. So that's one thing. <laughs> because everybody's parents wanted to raise, you know, a top-selling salesperson or a, you know, a, a successful lawyer or a doctor, but these people have clearly second-guessed it. And then I think of, you know, my mom when I was a kid and I love her to death. I mean, she was super supportive of me as an artist and a musician. I don't think any parent safely can say, and myself included, that they you know, want to raise a rock star in the traditional sense. They want somebody to go live in a stinky van for you know, 10 months out of the year and make no money and eat crappy food and maybe someday make it. It's a lot of uncertainty. However, you know, when it is now a parent of three kids and I'm trying to push and position my own values for them in some degree, but let them choose. I show them the huge value of creativity and that there's no uncertainty in true authentic creativity because your unique gift to the world is your voice. And however that comes out in whatever medium and whatever job, I'm in support of it. But you're right. It does conflict with my safety thing because I think about my my precious little daughter going rocking out some stinky bar full of drunks. And I'm like, oh, God, please don't. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's, <laughs> I got to reconcile my own crazy, I think. Yeah. And I don't think the security, just to go back to that, for anyone that does value it, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It only is wrong when you're acting on security out of the face of fear of doing what your intuition tells you. So, for example, my husband loves his job. He has security in it and he adores it. And I appreciate it as well because my career does not have that security that his does. So security, even in that sense, when you're employed, is always a veil. You know, it's kind of a... a a mirage because, you know, there's a lot of things outside of your control, even in a corporate sense, layoffs and and closures and so forth. But um, there's nothing wrong with security, but it is a safety blanket that can keep us from listening to our intuition. And that's when it becomes something that's dangerous. And that's especially when other people are valuing security for you versus you listening to your own intuition. That's when the security becomes the stifling blanket. Yes. 
I love how you, yeah, you, you tend, I, I could tell you spend uh, so much time thinking and reconciling these things because my good friend, Jonathan Fields wrote the book Uncertainty. It was kind of a, it was kind of a, a stepping off point that got me deeper into a lot of thinking around these subjects. As most of us do, I discovered Brene Brown in the process. And she has me reevaluating perfectionism because as a double A Virgo, I'm obsessed with perfectionism, whether it's my music or, you know, different things that I craft. And her quote totally falls in line with what you just said, which is perfectionism is a 10 ton shield we think is protecting us when really it just keeps us from being seen. And I think perfectionism and uncertainty are the exact same thing. They, they have that allure and that facade of safety, but they are anything from safe when you consider where they lead people, you know, in these times of self-reflection crisis like, like I had. Whoa, that's just blowing my mind because I have struggled with perfectionism as well, trying to do everything that people told me to as the good girl, whatever, growing up and was miserable with it. But at the same time, I went full time out of college with my own career. I'm self-employed, so I had never had a career. I just did it. And so I've been living on uncertainty for the last eight years, seven years, I guess. And I will say I've never linked the two because I'm someone who's always thought of myself as, yes, I struggle with perfectionism from time to time for sure and debilitating in college and in my childhood. But at the same time, I look at myself as someone who is extremely used to and familiar, I wouldn't say comfortable, but at the same time, kind of comfortable because I've always had it with uncertainty. To link those changes my whole perspective on that perfectionism and almost kind of makes me realize and kind of resist the urge to have that perfectionist tendency or to follow it because I see myself as someone who is comfortable with uncertainties. It's really mind-blowing. I love that you shared that. Well, thanks. Thanks. And you know, it's funny. It's, it's the deeper you get into your own self-reflection and living through your values and your internal guidance system, the disturbing thing can be that everything's up, up for grabs. Like on our bad days when we're stressed out, we're like, oh my God, nothing is stable. But the exhilarating thing on our great days is that everything is up for grabs. Everything's up for questioning and examination. And my latest obsession, you know, so it was like uncertainty, then it was uh, perfectionism. And now that I'm starting to manage that a lot better, I'm starting to totally renegotiate my relationship with time. And I started becoming obsessed with what I call time bending. You know, if we think we're perfectionists about, you know, how our job is supposed to look or that our, you know, inside of our house is supposed to look like a Pinterest page or whatever that looks like for people, our relationship with time tends to be a mirror of all those things because there's some sort of weird safety thing in this like obsession with creating to-do lists and the obsession with checking off every little mosquito off our to-do list at the expense of what a lot of sales experts call or business development experts call hunting big game, which is, you know, your primary reason for living, the stuff that you should be out doing. Why are you compromising that to check off these little to-do lists and how is time you know, your relationship with time affecting that. So that's kind of my current wormhole of examination. Like I, I'm trying to get way more off the clock, way more into the now, way more present with the people I care about in my life because I realized that, especially after the, the previous month where I had a few deaths in our family, I just realized like how finite all of this is and nobody's going to remember how perfect we were. Nobody's going to remember how you know, how many to-do lists items we crossed off, they're going to remember the depth of our interactions. So it's like, how can you use your values 
around authenticity and balance and, you know, moving at the rhythm of your soul, all these like killer things to just leverage better interactions in the moment. You know, it just, it's, it just becomes a wider conversation. Absolutely. And isn't that whole mosquito checking. I like that whole cross off the thing. It's so tiny and it feels so satisfying. So the idea of security, right? We talked about how that's like this like shield we use to protect ourselves. Well, isn't checking off all of those little inane mosquitoes on our to-do list the same thing? It makes us have this sense of security. And in my Catherine Jackson interview a few weeks ago, we talked about how really it's just a serotonin boost. So it's actually addictive to cross off the little mosquitoes. We feel like we are accomplishing something, but at the same time, we're stuck in that safety and security blanket. That's not a bad, you know, security is not a bad thing, but it is when it's keeping you from the uncertainty of living from that value. So isn't that really what's happening is it feels good. We get a quick rush and we get to avoid the uncertainty that comes from really hunting that big game, like you said. And it's reinforced and taught to us from a young age, you know, that this is how we get things done, quote unquote, is through action. But as a yogi, I realized that there's an immense difference between action for action's sake and what yogis call right action. Right action is kind of surgical precision to how you direct your action. So it's worth meditating and going and taking a shower, going and taking a run, and then thinking about the two or three killer steps you need to do or take versus the litany of endless things that arrive via email, phone, fax, whatever inputs we have. Usually there are other people's things that they want us to get done for them. Yeah, it's, it's everything you said. Let's go into these non-negotiables because you have a lot of things going on. Three kids, you have your day job, you have this epic life, you have the work with Jonathan Fields. How do you have non-negotiables when you have so many negotiables? My ultimate non-negotiable really comes down to just being my singular self. And and I tend to be multifaceted, but most people are. I've heard uh, Emily Wapnick, uh, she's a blogger. She calls them multi-potentialites. And all of us have to wear those different hats, especially if we you know run businesses or have families. So my ultimate mission is to just be the best Chrissy I can be. My mom still calls me Chrissy, you know, even though I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> I happen to have, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Kriyaban yogi, meaning I meditate. 60 to 90 minutes per day. I try to run and bike ride and take care of myself on the vitality tip every day to some level. Uh, three kids, as you mentioned, been married for 15 years. I've been a multi-instrumentalist since I was a kid. I've played cello, bass, guitar, uh, mostly as a bassist in touring bands. And how do I keep all those things alive in my life without letting one of them die off or falter or, or get downgraded to hobby status? And it's really all a matter of alignment. So I made them non-negotiable, meaning I tell people to draw a line in the sand. These are the things, your, your separate talents and skills that may be seemingly disparate on the surface, but if you dig deeper, they're un- unquestionably what make you, you. So they're the things that people thank you for, the things that you rock out like during a party or during a gathering or in your work life where it's like, wow, we could always count on her for that, that thing. So they could be wildly different for people. Those just happen to be mine. So if I'm able to align those things where I get to a point where there's no toggle between who I am and what I do. So it's like you could give me that big list of all these different jobs or hats that I wear. But if my mission is to ultimately just be myself in any of those situations, I could pick up a base during one of my keynotes and help drive home some points about leadership. I could use music in my family situation, certainly using my family situation to wrangle crazy salespeople that I'm training and all the above. So it's kind of all that pursuit of integration. But yeah, I think think there are a lot of things for people. 
Okay, so in step two of life with intention process, I teach people that when they find the value-led actions they'd like to take, that there is always a one-for-one in the present moment. There's only so much time, money, resources, and attention in the present. doesn't mean abundance isn't there for us in the long term, but in the present moment, there's there's a finite. It's not limited. It's just finite. So obviously, with all of these things going on, you have a finite amount of time to devote to them. Yeah. So what things have you removed or other people might have included that you've chosen to remove in order to make that space? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, as you say, there's definite compromises you need to make and be willing to make to be who you are. And my favorite definition of sobriety, you know, sobriety in the typical American sense is really misconstrued by prohibition really, really changed how we define sobriety. Usually people define it in our country as the absence of being drunk <laughs> or the absence of booze. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Or or, a, or really, it's kind of like a lame alternative to drinking is how people define it. <laughs> I define sobriety by my friend Susan Piver, who's like a a renowned Shambhala Buddha. She's written a bunch of books. But she defined uh, sobriety for me in the best sense. And sobriety is truly a virtue, and it's on most lists of virtues. I'm like, well, how could sobriety be a virtue? Just to not be drunk is a virtue? (laughs) Yeah. But in digging into it, it's exactly how you just defined it, which is being completely immersed and okay with your present situation and being in it to win it. So it it actually means, as she defined it, and as a Buddhist would define it, it's pared down, sharp-eyed, awake. And if you think about that and how what a huge contrast that is to what we're taught sobriety, quote-unquote, is, pared down, sharp-eyed, awake is how I define sobriety. That's why it shows up in my lens statement. Yes, I did end up quitting drinking a couple years ago, but it was mostly to help me pare down all of the nonsense and trim my little bonsai tree into something that I love and adore. So what did I cut off of it? Well, I absolutely cut out television. I absolutely cut out mindless attention paid to other people's agendas via the news, via Facebook feeds, via even, you know, close family members, you know, extended family and family of origin. I love them all to death. They they are responsible in part for who I am today. However, now it's my house, my rules. So I have to really protect my filter from other people's agendas. I started paying attention to how often and how long I check email each day. This quote I heard recently was great, which was, email is a convenient filing system for other people's agendas. Yes, yes. I've heard something similar. (laughs) Totally. And it's like, how often do we stay chained to it all day long, you know? It's that serotonin Buddhist, man. It just is like addictive. It is, but the serotonin I get from a combination, a lethal combination of meditation and running or getting down to my kids' levels on my knees and looking into their little sparkling eyes and hugging their little bodies or doing work that makes me feel fully integrated and alive, I mean, it just doesn't even compare. It's like this level of what I call gratitude that is just so – the serotonin is is killer to the extent that it motivates me properly, but I don't want to use serotonin to avoid pain or to do the quick fix. I want to go for the, for the long-term commitment. So, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of paring down, but the list that I've left with, it still seems like a lot for most people. However, I grew up thinking that, you know, and I was encouraged by my grandfather to think that, you know, if you're a musician, just be a musician. You know, if you're a businessman, be a businessman. If you're a householder or a yogi, be those things. And fortunately, my path has never forced me to choose between those and they're non-negotiable because I know they're not divisible. That's fantastic. I just want to think on that. Yeah, I know it's a lot. I know it's people, people say, and, and, and this is, you know, if you think back to what I was saying when I was disintegrated and I was a total disaster, I felt like a jack of all trades, master of none. 
However, when you're integrated, you have the potential for mastery in any one and all of those over time. I would never say I'm a master in any of those areas, especially especially if you ask my 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 wife who's like the a way more active, killer, intuitive parent. She's my example and my mentor in that way. However, I know that I'm willing to bring a bunch of unique tool sets to the table in the role of parent because of the fact that I'm a musician and yogi and those other things. Now that you mentioned that you quit drinking a few years ago, what went into that decision and what's your life been like since? Because it doesn't seem like you had a huge substance abuse problem prior to that. Right. Yeah. So as I said, when I was 26, I was a little bit more checked out, a little bit more into different things, but I never considered myself to hit that, you know, classic AA bottoming out type of thing. Like there was no DUIs, there was no nights in jail or stupidity from drinking. What I really started questioning, and most of it was led by meditation, was that as I meditated, you start becoming really uh, you scrutinize every single habit, both good and bad, and you maximize the good and you rip out the bad. Wait, that's what meditation teaches you? Well, that's what the the yogic training that I study. So it's it's yoga, but it's not half the yoga in the traditional sense of uh, stretchy, downward facing dog, happy baby yoga. It's the yoga of God realization through meditation. So yeah, so when I talk yoga, I'm mostly talking about it's kind of a heavy duty regimen of meditation that throughout the course of your life, your meditation. So at first, maybe you're just piecing out from all the static that you're, you're dealt with and you're trying to create, you know, less stress. But then as you move beyond that, then it's like, okay, how do I examine everything that's going on in my life in a way that allows me to make it better or to make me live you know, more authentically. So as, as I started doing that process, this was to, you know, beginning of 2012, I simultaneously joined the Good Life Project immersion training led by Jonathan Fields. So there was like this, all this breaking apart going on. It's like my career was up for grabs, my marriage, you know, what was not the hap- as happy as it's been since. And I just had to examine all these things. I was like, you know what, drinking was totally negotiable for me. I loved it. I was, you know, I had a long distinguished 22 year drinking career, you know, (laughs) so many laughs, so many good times, so many rock and roll evenings, all those things. But I realized that it was becoming a veil or a filter for me taking my meditation practice and my family practice and my music practice deeper. So I just turned it off like a light switch. I didn't do any, you know, 12 steps or anything. I just decided from that point forward, it wasn't me. And, you know, the energy that I've gotten back and the clarity and the intense dance infernos now when I'm sober that maybe, you know, like I dance and have more fun than I ever did in bars when I was drunk. And now I just kind of ride the wave of people's vibe around me and don't judge it. I just decide it's not for me. Wow. So it's kind of like Brene Brown, actually. She spoke about, I think, in The Gifts of Imperfection, her own journey. She doesn't drink, I believe, at this point, but she talks a little bit about her own journey. She didn't really need AA or anything, but she basically kind of alludes to this idea of numbing and that when we are drinking or using any type of escapism, that it's a numbing mechanism to help us check out of the present moment. Is that's pretty much what you're saying it was for you? Oh, absolutely. Because I couldn't handle all the stress of trying to wear those different hats. So I would maybe reach for a beer a few extra nights a week, you know, so I wasn't, it wasn't the quantity that I was drinking. It was the uh, frequency. So, you know, all of a sudden I was drinking three, four nights a week, maybe even one or only one or two beers. But to me, that's a problem. It's like, what, what's really, 
what am I really trying to protect myself from? People do that with food. They do that with crappy news programming. They do that with all sorts of things. So, and, and it's funny because as I conquered that own habit uh, in my in my life, I realized it was kind of a cornerstone habit that's allowed me to put a lot of really positive habits in place, like an hour of meditation. I would have never been able to sit still 10 years ago, let alone meditate for five minutes, let alone an hour. So, you know, trading in drinking or trading in excessive sleeping for meditation for me has been the biggest gift. Let's actually talk about meditation because you've actually created a program at your company to bring meditation to your workplace. Let's talk a little bit about what that journey was like. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you asking about it because it's such a it's such a simple yet radical concept. You know, it's like, how do we be comfortable not only in our own skins, but around the people that we work with every day? How do we practice acts of sanity, as John Kabat-Zinn calls them? And that's that's really what The Pause is. The, the program I created is called The Pause. Our company, Centro, is headquartered in Chicago. We win awards for culture. We've been named the number one best place to work by Crane's Business in Chicago for the last four straight years, which is pretty crazy because it's, it's such an exhaustive series of surveys from everybody that touches the company that there's no way we could rig it. As much as we'd want to rig it, we can't. So, so I have this special culture that's open to these things. And I, as I, you know, deepen my own practice, I realized that the biggest gift and the biggest impact I could have on the company far outside of sales revenue and training salespeople on generating revenue, which is what I do for my quote unquote day job. I knew I had to give them mindfulness and sanity and peace. So we created the pause, which is basically 15 minutes every day across all time zones at the same time, 2.45 PM central and all the accompanying time zones for people to peace out. No inputs, no screens, no noises. And they could close their laptops. They could go within, they could reflect, they could pray, they could doodle. Um, but it's, it's really just a pause so they could head into their, you know, the back half of their day with just a little bit more self-reflection. I love that. So is it enforced or is it just an option for everyone? You know, I wish I could enforce it and I could travel around <laughs> with a cattle prod or some sort of stun gun and stun people into meditating. And it's really the hard part because the, so how I launched it was I, I, I was able to get a bunch of heavy duty executives on board, most notably our founder and uh, chiefs, Sean Riegsecker. So he's our CEO. He totally backed it. He's a big meditator. I educated everybody company wide. We had a series of webinars that had about 90% attendance. So there was a lot of heavy excitement around it, like how they use it. People want to know, when, when people are around my uncomfortable levels of energy, they want to know two things. And one of them is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and two is like, what are you on and where can I get some, you know? And it's a joke, but at the same time, I realize what they're getting at is, is it's really presence. I try to cultivate and maintain the, the childlike fascination that my kids have or my grandfather had and was able to hold on to. And I do it through meditation. And I think that most people, when they're unhappy at their job, and, and there's plenty of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs that are just as unhappy as everybody sitting at a desk. We can't, Amen. Yeah, exactly. We can't lie and say there's not. Like Everybody reaches those points of growth where they're just like, okay, how do I... How do I make whatever I'm doing, the good stuff, sustainable, and then pare down the bad? And all the paths in my career led me towards meditation. You know, So it's personal and spiritual development all led me to, let's just get more mindful. And the more, the more I brought it up, the less I needed to sell it, and the more I just needed to practice it and encourage people to practice it. So that's what we do. And how long has the program been going on? It's been going on since last July. And you know, I'll be totally honest, the, the meditation 
I'm always telling people it's a show me, don't tell me proposition. So just show me that you're practicing. Show up to our little group and insight timer, which is an app that anybody could download off the app store. And we have a little community there. And just let me see that you're putting in the time. Because if I could cultivate your practice outside of work, I know that you'll be bringing it to your work inside the company. So it's been going on since July and I travel around frequently and the company has been awesome about sending me on the road. I just got back from Dallas, New York city and LA speaking specifically and only about meditation. That's how much the company values. So is, do we have a hundred compliance on everybody practicing every day? Absolutely not because there's meetings, there's needs, there's, there's a million and one excuses that people will use not to practice. However, I'm very compassionate to the fact that, you know, I don't sit in an open cubicle situation in front of hundreds of my coworkers and feel comfortable meditating. That's where the average employee is seated. So I'm always just trying to keep arming them with tools, different LMS trainings, all sorts of things to help deepen their practice. I love it. So, okay, let's take this a little bit bigger than just your situation. Yeah. For anyone listening that has an environment where they can or maybe they want to more specifically yeah. bring their passion. It may be meditation. It may be something else. Instead of this idea, we only have to have a business to, in order to do what we love. How can we bring what we love to our own workplace? Mm, yeah. So what would you tell people, especially someone that's not in Crane's number one best place to work? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it's interesting you bring that up because I was able to, in thinking back on my career, working for, as most people do in their career, working for a handful of companies you love and a handful of companies you hate, all those things. What I was always able to do was to say, you know, how can I do more of the things I love to do and less of the things I don't? So again, going back to the things that people thank you for, if you have a great sense of humor, you might be better at wrangling different people for meetings than the average executive that sends out that crappy cold email like, hey, my office, five o'clock or whatever. You might be able to bring people to the table that had no interest in being at the table together solely through your amazing chess skill, which helps you navigate political landmines, all, all sorts of seemingly disparate skills that you have that you could bring to the table. So I tell people to lead by example, raise your hand, volunteer, just start doing these things, whether people are asking you to or not. And all of a sudden, your personal brand within the company becomes one of wow, this nut out here in Ohio, this is what I did early on, was sending out a personal development newsletter to the company that had a lot of humor and a lot of soul into it. And that evolved to the point of them being open to me suggesting a meditation program for all employees, executives included. Okay. So what you just said was basically you started with something really low, like a low hanging yes. fruit that was not hard for the person to say yes to. A newsletter that's going to help people. No harm, no foul, right? You're not changing their workflow. Add value first. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So something super simple. Then you get known for it. You Like you said, you call it your personal brand, but just kind of get known for that thing that you do and then escalate it as that thing you started with takes root. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you get this from being a blogger and a podcaster and all those things. Every, every training you could possibly do and every proven success in this space is you add value first. Because if you don't add value first, like what good are you? You know, you can't just invoice people if they haven't received or don't know what your perceived value is. So I, I would just encourage people and coach people and coax them into adding value in, in whatever you know, individual way that you can 
And I always say that you're only compensated in direct proportion to how much value you create. And it's usually we only deserve about a fraction of the value we create for others. So if you have something outside of your work, if you have sick needle pointing skills and you could create some sick company corporate Afghan or something, you know, whatever, just do it. And I guarantee you, people will be blown away by it. They'll be like, wow, look what she did or look what he did. All of a sudden, you'll be asked to, you know, run a philanthropy thing or to, you know, to, to help the company in different ways. Yeah, I could see people that have design skills or even like scrapbooking that want to do it with their yes. coworkers in the evenings or after work. Or my husband is a programmer. He loves teaching um, programming and talking about it. So he started a little group for people in the, especially the customer service or any part of grubhub.com that didn't program or know how to. He and another coworker just started this little Wednesday evening class where they worked with anyone that showed up and they would teach them what they wanted to learn. So yeah, it seems like just find a way to bring your passions to the people you work with. Yeah. And it's all about value first. And I mean, look what your husband's doing. He'll be highly regarded by every executive as somebody who's taken their own time to develop their coworkers. I mean, that means so much in a growing culture. It means so much in Gen X, Gen Y, millennial type of environments where people need meaning. They need to see that there are people there to mentor them. And sometimes your mentors are right alongside you. So if you have skills to share, why would you hold back? There's so many opportunities here. I love it. And there's no risk. There's no huge uncertainty you have to face. It's just sharing your gifts with the people that you're around, especially if they happen to be in your workplace. Yeah. And I would say that too. extend that too. like, I really try to call out to all the artists because the artists are usually the ones that carry somewhat of the biggest chip. Like I'm not allowed to be who I am, man. I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm playing in my band at night and wearing a tie during the day. And that was me for years. And I was bitter and messed up from it. And now I have moments where I'm literally on stage with my CEO singing ignition remix by R Kelly in front of a couple (laughs) hundred coworkers. And it's like this company tradition now where people, if I show up for work events without my guitar, people say, dude, where's your guitar? I thought we were going to do campfire sing-alongs. I'm like, oh, you know, I actually wanted to get work done this time. <laughs> and it's and it all just comes from that steady commitment to just being who you are, wherever you are. And I know that's easier said than done in different types of cultures. But I guarantee you, if you tell people that you are an artist and you show them your work, they will be way more compelled by it than repelled by it. They're never going to hold it against you like, oh, you paint? That means you're not committed to our company. It's like BS. They will see that as like a, wow, thank God we hired this person. This person's creative. They're multifaceted. They see pattern recognition. All these positive aspects. All right. Just for the people that maybe don't have the most welcoming atmosphere, do you have any tips for anyone that maybe doesn't have a supportive upper level executive suite? Yeah. So I would, I always try to navigate my career as the following is so when you're interviewing with companies and I happen to be in an environment that I love. The first interview I had with the company happened to be with our CEO who seems like a soul brother now, but I've had managers come and go throughout that time. And I always tell people this, navigate yourself by the next person above you. If you don't want that person's job, or if you don't want that person's life on some level, if you don't vibe with how their work-life balance shakes out or whatever that looks like, you might want to find another department to work in or serve in. If you don't have respect for the people at the top and how they govern their affairs or if they're duplicitous or, or not legit, absolutely take your time but find a better fit. You have to be in alignment. Like You have to be able to adapt your dreams to the dreams of the organization. And if those are two totally different things, it's okay to find another thing. If you don't believe it's possible to find another thing, Try your best to navigate towards the best manager within that organization who you do have some sort of respect for. 
And not to point any fingers or anything, but from what you've shared before recording started, you've actually moved around a lot in your own company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my thing was I knew I I read Good to Great because they gave the book Good to Great out to every new (laughs) hire back when I started. One of the things that they drive home in that book is, you know, make sure you're on the right bus. And then once you're on the right bus, find the right seat. So I would tell people to start with companies or organizations that have phenomenal resources and reputations, you know, so I, I would I always say that my company I currently work for will absolutely be the last company I ever worked for just because I can't improve on it. So once I knew that I was on the right bus, it took me a good five years to find the right seat. So I came up through sales, I became a regional sales director, I earned some credibility and, you know, a, a lot of revenue, you know, doing that thing. However, I was very unhappy just being looked at as a sales revenue number. So I looked at education and development, I thought, wow, this is kind of a new frontier, I'm really into motivating and inspiring people. And I bring with me some of the sales acumen. So I designed my own role. And ever since then, it's really hard for me to tell legitimately, like I'm not even blowing smoke. It's legitimately hard to tell when I'm working and when I'm not, because I predominantly love what I do. That's incredible. So to move on to a kind of different tangent, what doubts or resistance have you had to face in your personal life? Mm. Same, Same litany as everybody else, you know, I'm not good enough, not smart enough, not rich enough. I'm really looking for what's the thought, and maybe it's maybe the most recent one that's nagging you. Yeah, you know, I think Gay Hendricks has this book called uh, The Big Leap. I'd really encourage anybody to read that. It's it's a phenomenal book. And um, he talks about upward limiting beliefs. And everybody has them wired. And if I had to look closely at what my upward limiting beliefs were, it was this vague belief I've had to go the long road and disprove all the haters and non-believers that this integration stuff is legit and I can pursue and at times achieve mastery in any one of these areas over time. And there's there's always that deep-seated belief that's that's way down low that's what if I'm full of it? What if this is misguided? What if I'm just going to crash and burn like people have been telling me? That is another reason why my butt's on the cushion every day at 5.30 in the morning, you know, sit in meditation for an hour, is that I'm recommitting and I'm, I'm testing all my values and data from the previous day. And over the long term, I tend to err solely on the side of truth, which is, this is how it works. Maybe I tripped over it through very painful means at times. However, all I can do is keep chugging away and create my own body of work. So I guess that, that ties into a lot of doubts that most people have is that, you know, what if, what if all my assumptions are wrong? Well, it's your job to be out there every day creating a body of work and trying to disprove those assumptions, gathering data. That's what you should be doing, you know? So you overcome it by getting back on the mat. Yeah, back on the mat, doing the work, back in, you know, back in the arena. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would tell them to temper their speed. I mean, we live in a culture of immediate gratification and keeping up with the Joneses and comparing our Facebook posts to others and all this total insanity, Pinterest pages, all these things. And it can be very materialistic and it could be very misguided. Like you say, little V's, you know, uh, lowercase V's, achievements and attainments and material stuff. I call them shiny pennies. Yeah, exactly. Shiny pennies. And and we we live in a culture where everybody is like primping and priming and polishing and puffy painting their way into perfection all the time. (laughs) Puffy painting their way into perfection. I love that. And they're not being legit about, you know, that they may have had to go purchase stretchy pants at Walmart the day before just to, you know, keep the, you know, bills on track or whatever. Like people aren't being authentic is what I'm saying. So don't judge yourself by that. 
guide yourself internally. And the only way to truly do that is to get serious about what Jess and I are talking about, which is to craft your uppercase Vs, craft your virtues, craft your lens statement, create such insane internal alignment that you are unshakable in your quest, meaning that people will not douse your undeniable flame with their doubt and second guessing. But that only comes from inside yourself. People like Steve Jobs, people like Oprah, people like Jess Lively, they have that. And sometimes it's very hard fought, but these people tend to work more on their alignment each and every day than they work on their busy little to-do lists because the alignment creates leverage with getting all that stuff done in one fell swoop. Well said. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't believe how much we have in common. And we've met (laughs) each other by standing in a LaGuardia Airport. This is incredible. Yeah, I know. You know, it just shows that maybe sometimes people do come into vibrational proximity and it's like, I just feel blessed to have crossed orbit with you. The same here. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it. Guys, I will not be surprised at all if you feel like you need to rewind and listen to this episode again. I really hope you do. And if you want to leave Christopher a message on Twitter, feel free to go over. His Twitter handle is at this epic life. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if this episode has impacted you as much as it has me personally, I really hope you share this with all of your friends or the people online that you think it could help. Thank you guys so much. And I'll see you next week. 